As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains accounts of sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. It destroys your life. It robs you of your personhood and your identity. And depending what happens in the aftermath, how supportive an environment you're in, you'll either recover or you'll be stuck or, you know, some variation of that. Yeah, it's really complicated. Today's guest is Ashley Ray Cooper. She's a powerful young advocate for sexual assault victims and survivors and she's one of 17 survivors who've received legal assistance from the Let Us Speak campaign, which we've featured a number of times before on Australian True Crime, as is former Australian of the Year, Grace Tame. The Let Us Speak campaign was created by Walkley Award-winning journalist and sexual assault survivor and advocate Nina Fennell in response to gag laws in several states around Australia that prevented victims from telling their own stories. You can learn more about the campaign and the current state of affairs around the country at the website letusspeak.com.au and you can also donate so that more Australian women can speak. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. Ashley Ray is a great woman confident, smart, witty and really charming company. All of that is testament to her powerful survival spirit 
because she was taken advantage of at a very vulnerable time in her life. It really could have destroyed her. For those of us who have young girls in our care, what Ashley Ray has to say is invaluable. We'll start with why she feels it's so important for her to tell her story. It was that I noticed there was so much that wasn't being talked about. There was not a very holistic, victim-centred or survivor-centred narrative in the media ever. It was always really traumatising headlines and really gory, very personal stuff that was always being shared. So I wanted us to start having other conversations about what it's like to go through some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what has led to a lot of the work that I've done and some of the stuff that I share. It's about those experiences that you never hear about in the media. If we can start by talking about the words to use in terms of victim or survivor, because inevitably most people use the word victim as in child sex abuse victim. Mm -hmm. But then when we use it in broadcasting, we will get a lot of complaints from people who'll say, oh, you shouldn't use the word victim, you should use the word survivor. But my, in my experience, the people involved tend to be sort of split in terms of yep. what word they use to describe themselves. So what's, what's your perspective on that? You just used both, by the way. So that, I found that interesting, you know. You sort of corrected yourself. You said victim first and then survivor, so. Well, I find most people understand it if you say victim. When you say survivor, that's quite broad and people aren't used to hearing that. So often if I'm talking, I might start by saying victim, but then it leads into survivor. The technical term that's used um, in the sector of like counselling and social work and all that stuff is victim survivor. I don't like Mm. that because it's long. (laughs) Yes. Impractical. Um, It's just impractical. And it doesn't feel, it, it never resonated with me. Um, I use the word survivor most of the time with a capital S, if I remember my caps lock. Yeah, right. (laughs) To describe yourself as in how you feel about yourself? About me, but also I look at it and go, it doesn't matter how big or small the trauma was. Like we're not here to compare trauma, but you still survived it. And there's so much, it's not just about the act, whatever it was, however severe or not severe it was, you still got through it. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, that's obviously a very different ball game if someone's deceased. Absolutely, mm. right? And we, we know that suicide is, is a part, a very big part of, unfortunately, the, the trauma, the ongoing trauma in the community. 100%. Yeah. Not everyone it, – it's a really big point and I do tweets about this regularly, but literally not everybody survives sexual mm-hmm. assault or anything else. I mean, scarred on my psyche is – the case of Jill Ma and um, Eurydice Dixon, those things are just like burned into my brain when they happened. And it's a stark reminder every time that it's around that anniversary of when it happened that literally not everybody survives. I wasn't even thinking about that. You're, you're right. I was thinking about the victims of childhood sexual abuse from the cases, a lot of the cases that we heard about in the Royal Commission, for example, you know, the, the Ballarat Mm. cases and and people who gave evidence to the Royal Commission who would, you know, hold up a photograph of a class, let's say, yeah, and just point out the number of people from their cohort from school who had taken their own lives. And I was thinking about that, but, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. No, you're bang on right. I mean, not everyone... I mean, it's in not various all, ways. Yeah, it's, it's sometimes it's immediate. Sometimes it takes. It's a very slow death yeah. that happens over a number of decades. Not everyone is a survivor. Yeah, mm. and it takes often years and years for people to ever disclose that they mm. were sexually abused, if they do at all. Well, thirty-three years we learned was the average. That again yeah. came out through the Royal Commission. Thirty-three years was the average length of time it took those people to disclose it takes a long long time and that's a lot of bravery from anyone to disclose anything Mm. Mm. and by that time a lot of them I don't know the stats so I'm not going to say most but a lot of them had been in contact with with the law yeah and so we're not and not in contact as in they hadn't been victims they had committed crimes and so or, you know, had, had drug addictions or alcohol addictions or whatever, and so they were deemed poor witnesses when they wanted to then bring their own cases to court and these are all the reasons why people weren't disclosing and people weren't taking things yeah. to court. 
it's a huge problem the way that we view um, and, and understand the credibility of victims. Yeah. So even when I was going through my court stuff, there were questions about, you know, okay, do you have a history of drugs and alcohol? And I was like, nah. And they're like, no, really. That's a miracle. Yeah. And I'm like, nah, don't. And they're like, really? Mm. And you're sure? Mm. Like, no, I've got Panadol. Do you want some? Yeah, because that is <laughs> uncommon, isn't it? It's uncommon. But the thing is, we know that being a victim of a crime, whatever it is, leads to um, further victimization down the road, psychosocial disability. So things like um, being diagnosed with complex PTSD, BPD, depression, anxiety, all of those very somewhat preventable things. But it also leads to things like being involved with crime and coming into contact with the justice system and not in the context of you being a victim, in the context of you being a perpetrator of something, that's whether it. that's theft or breaking and entering, whatever it is. Well, this is it. We talk a lot about that to other people, certainly when, when I'm promoting this show, about the fact that I've learnt that a lot of perpetrators have been victims prior to being perpetrators. Mm. That's been a really interesting learning for me during this show. It's really complex, isn't mm. it? It's fascinating to think about academically and mm. sort of in that sense, but it's also, it's scary to think about. Well, then that's how you realise that it is a cultural issue, that crime is a cultural issue. It's not an individual issue. Yeah. It's not a case of stop, just stop doing it, you individual. Yeah. It's not that simple. It's not a failing, I mean, you could say it's a failing of the individual, but it's also a failing of society. Yes. Mm. And our systems. You know. Yeah. However good they can be. And I got quite lucky with a lot of my experiences. A lot of people have really terrible experiences with the justice system and I managed mm. to kind of cruise through a bit. Yep. Not everyone is that fortunate. It's a lucky dip. It's really a lucky dip. And you get it as well with asking survivors of, of abuse and sexual abuse, well, why didn't you say anything sooner? Like why why didn't you just say it when it happened and it's as your yeah. experience shows it's it's complicated because it's very um I don't know if subversive is the right word but you know you were groomed essentially weren't you yeah you're groomed and it depends who the perpetrator is but your entire family can be groomed as well the other yes. yeah and the other component to that is who the perpetrator is how much power do they have and influence in your life so is it a teacher do you have to see them every day when you go to school is it a family member and you don't want to be separated from the rest of your family? Like those are really big decisions that weigh very heavily on people. Um, and when, when your abuser is a family member, speaking of things being complex, you, you can still love them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So that's complex as well. You can love someone who's hurting you and not want them to get in trouble and not want to lose them. And especially for children... The idea of being left alone or the idea of, of the unknown of, well, then what, yeah, like you said, of losing my family can be more frightening. Yeah, and it's that innate thing of the, hang on, this is these are people I love and care about that are yeah. supposed to look after me. Yeah. Like who's going to look after me if they're gone? Yes. Mm. Can, we, um, can we hear a bit about your story specifically so that we can, like do you talk about your specific story? Yeah, I can talk about that. You so. don't have to. Now, now you've just lowered your eyes to the desk like, oh, God, here we go. Oh, everybody wants to hear the kind of but there's a difference. details. There's a difference between telling the story and traumatising everybody and, and giving really... And re-traumatising yourself. I mean... Yeah, there's a, there's a difference between telling the story in a way that is constructive and helpful and in a way that is here to gross people out and yeah, yeah, give yeah. us the heebie-jeebies. We were talking about that, weren't we, about <laughs> true crime podcasts and the, the vast range of, you know, what you can get. Ashley and I were chatting about, you know... Yeah, because, like, there has to be a purpose, uh, we always say. Like, what is the purpose to telling a story, a, a true crime story? What is the point? Is the point... To be salacious or just to be sensational, to give everyone the heebie-jeebies, to just give all these details about something terrible that happened to somebody else? Or is there a higher purpose to it? 100%. And I tell my story because there's lessons that everyone can take from that. Mm. And it's because I know that when I was going through my stuff, uh, this is back before mobile phones became mainstream and we all still had 3310s and 15s. 
um, Nokia's. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and we used to play Snake. Good yeah, old Nokia. And, and you have to press it, the button three times to get the letter when you're texting. <laughs> but, you know, and also, I mean, I think with child exploitation, I think the importance and the purpose, hopefully, is to help others spot signs, exactly. recognise and assist ch- children to whom it's happening now, right? Yeah. And also, like, hearing other stories helps you recognise what's happening in your own life. That's so true, right? And that was really important for me because I, I used to get Dolly magazine and mm, yeah. every month there would be a story about mental health, like, like an eating disorder or there would be a story of a, like a survivor story. And that there was one issue that had um, – I can't remember all the details, but there was a story of a woman who had gone through emotional and physical abuse with her boyfriend as a teenager and that clicked things into place for me. And I was like, oh, that, okay, that's a few light bulbs going off there. And it it just helps break that ice. Yeah, because so, I mean, that's part of it. And again, this is something I've only just learned recently is the normalisation of abuse is so bigger part of it so that we don't even realize we're being abused that is huge that's a huge part of it this moment where you realize oh my god I am being yeah abused Mm. and that can take a very long time to work through yeah if if you choose to go that way yeah not everyone does Mm. yeah as my teenager puts it it's like toxic behavior my she kids keeps always toxic. That's toxic. The way that person Our treats kids are that person. So on it, aren't they? It's like I wouldn't know how to clue. Really, um, I just feel like that's toxic. Yeah, that's what my kids say to me about stuff. <laughs> mm. I just or feel like that's you're kind a, of toxic. You're a narcissist. Oh okay. yeah, like, right. Mm, okay. Oh, I just did, I would not have known yeah. that word. I wouldn't at your have had age. the language. And they go, for that, that word really? didn't exist when I was a teenager. Like you never heard it. I think it did, but like in medical journals or something. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. but our kids are like, oh god, mum. I think he's a narcissist. (laughs) What? I love that kids are growing up in a space where, like, the term, like, gaslighting and and, and all of that is fairly – like, it's open. Like, there are a lot more stories out there now that can show you examples of what this is and what it looks like. And how cool is that going to be when they get to, like, being 30? I don't want to think about that. It's too far away. Mm. Um, And that's – then they start having their own kids and they've already grown up in that environment where it's okay to – I mean, I'm not going to say it's completely permissible yet, but it is so much more normalised to talk about, hey, something's not going right here in this relationship for me. I need to yeah. seek some support. Because we've sort of been playing catch up like, you know, I know like about consent and everything like that. But thinking back to what the understanding was when I was a teenager, very different to now and it's about trying to apply those learnings yes. to how you're parenting. It's, I don't know, it's hard, but... At least we've got a chance, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Consent's a really interesting, really interesting space. Because it intersects with your story, doesn't it, with how you were were treated with um, in the justice system when you reported. Yeah. And it's, there's a lot that goes into consent. My definition is that it's always got to be legal. It's got to be sober. It's got to be enthusiastic and ongoing. Not everyone agrees with the sober bit. What? Um, yeah. How sober? Yeah, and that's the Honestly. part where we're having a lot of conversations yeah. about that with developing new legislation. Yeah. Um, you know, I know Grace team is aiming to get a national definition happening, which will be really cool if we can get that off the ground. Mm. It's very tricky though because, uh, you know, and I can hear everybody listening to this going, well, I mean, are we, are we, are we breath testing? Like what are we... You know, it is, it's, it's difficult, but it's, I mean, but then if you save one person from a sexual assault, is it, you know, it's worth it, I guess. It's, it's really difficult because it's anti- It's harder to do a rat test. Well, yeah. I mean, if you get your hands test. on one. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> if only they could combine the rat and the breath test. Yeah, it yeah. It would be kind of perfect. I mean, gosh. I don't know. <laughs> um... Because it's it's counterintuitive, isn't it? It's it's that that we've been that that sex feels like it should be a natural, instinctive thing, and we're putting all these rules around it. But then you think, well, it's it's kind of grown out of a I don't know. It feels as though it's grown out of an aggressive act, actually. If we le- if we allow it to remain instinctive. It and it feels be, like it's yeah. it it can be inherently aggressive actually and to the to the detriment of women doesn't it 
100%. You know, literally kind of knocking them over the head and dragging them to the cave kind of vibes. <laughs> no, no, do you know what I mean? Like like I'm talking primitive. I'm talking yeah. about our species in a primitive yeah. way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like our, like our species isn't designed for women's pleasure. No, and it really should be. That's what I mean. Romance literally, if you read, you know, the idea of romance was literally invented in the 19th century. It's not, yeah. that's not... That's not inherent to our reproduction, the reproduction of our species. We don't need that to multiply. <laughs> That's just something that was invented for fun by rich people in the I think 19th century. evolution got that one bit wrong. Yeah, right? So, <laughs> And the thought that you actually are able to say, no, I do not want to have sex. Yeah. Whereas it was like up until recent times where men and, and still is in some countries, you know, you know, it's yeah. men's right to... Yeah, I feel like evolutionarily we need to we need to grow bigger. <laughs> Women need to grow bigger. <laughs> that needs to be our kind of oh. that's how Darwinism needs to work for us. Anyway, this has become very <laughs> philosophical. Sorry. You, I maybe you should read um, Alain de Botton's work on this this issue of, on romance. It's fascinating. I will. Where he really breaks down where romance comes from and how it's just this thing that you know, European ponces invented <laughs> in the 19th century. I mean, it makes for great stories. And before that, no, yeah. it didn't. Yeah, it wasn't it a thing. Anyway, sorry, I digressed a long way. As luck would have it, I happened to have an interview with British philosopher and author Alain de Botton on the topic of love and romance up my sleeve. So I've uploaded it for you in case you're interested. You might be wondering what it all has to do with true crime. Well, it does have something to do with it, and you'll find out more about it after the break when the fairy tale industrial complex comes home to roost in the life of one 13-year-old girl. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Thank you to patrons Amanda Fernley, Angela Edwards, Leanne Stewart, David Voigt, Kelly Purcell, Shaylee Larkin, H, Laura Savage, and Courtney Bousset. There's a name for the rather unhelpful messaging we receive about love and relationships in everything from nursery rhymes to pop music and TV shows. It's called the fairy tale industrial complex. From the day we're born, it gets to work, wiring our synapses on behalf of marketers and manufacturers so that we'll spend our lives spending money one way or another on romance. If you've ever paid for a toy gorilla in silky boxer shorts covered in love hearts and given it to another human being on Valentine's Day, you can blame the fairy tale industrial complex. It's no secret that women and girls are more susceptible to this kind of messaging than men and boys. Our guest today is Ashley Ray Cooper, and for various reasons, she was very susceptible at a certain point in her life. 
So I was abused by a man that I'm going to call Sean <laughs> when I was 13 and sort of like the summer of 2004, 2005 um, for a couple of months at a time. And in that time pre- period, uh, the abuse escalated from like it, it went from zero to 350, like real fast. Within a couple of weeks, it, it went from sort of grooming and a little bit of controlling and coercion into uh, sexual assaults of quite severe variety. How was this possible? Like, who who were you at 13? I was a very uncomfortable teenager. We all are. I got two 12-year-olds. So <laughs> most of us, and I'm thinking of myself at 13, it's, it's a... It's a tough age for most of us. It's an awkward age and yeah. all of that stuff. So that's pretty common, isn't it? Were you uncommonly awkward or were you? I wasn't uncommonly awkward, but I had not long before moved to a completely new area and had started at a completely new school where I knew oh. no one. So my friendships were not very strong. Lonely. Um, yeah, a little bit. And the kids in my class, quite frankly, were rat bags. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, as we all are a little bit feral around that time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were a couple of boys in my class that, you know, particularly tried to make my life a bit hard. And Do you have siblings? Yeah. yeah, I had a baby sister at the time. Like she was a fat little thing, Beautiful. fat little blob, she was gorgeous, big chunky cheeks. Um, so was she taking up a lot of mum's... Yeah. Yeah, so mum's really focused on the baby. Yeah, and I also have a, a brother and a stepbrother at the time as well. So Were they any fun? No. We no didn't really spend a lot of time together. Okay. Um, you know, any grandparents or like was there anyone in your life who was giving you a lot of attention? Not really. I mean, we went through like a big life change about 18 months before this took place, which is, you know, my mum met her now husband um, they got married and had a baby very mm. quickly. So, and, and our lives had completely changed. So that sort of, the dust was sort of just sort of starting to settle on that enormous life change. And we were still trying to find our feet as a family. And that was really hard. Yeah, it is <laughs> at, that, at that age as well. Exactly. And one of the ways that um, they sought to do that was by taking us camping and getting us into things like um uh, riding motorbikes and stuff, which I was terrified of and then really loved. Great. Um, I have the scars on my knee from a few accidents. Um, and so it was on a camping trip for Melbourne Cup Weekend uh, where we went, I want to say it's Nuji, somewhere out near Nuji. And we were camping by a river and just in the campsite next door was a group of young guys and we met there because they're in the campsite next door and we had to go, we had to cross the river across this. If you can picture like one of those dodgy wooden bridges from like a cartoon where it looks <laughs> like it's going to collapse any second, it's, there's planks falling down. It's rickety, but you have to, cause the toilet's on the other side. Oh. <laughs> wow. Um, so we all went as like a group with like a chain of torches <laughs> across the river, to tr- like across the bridge to try and like get to the loo. Um, and that's how we met was on the bridge, you know, on the way to the toilet, which is mm. just a fun way to meet people. God, I hate camping. <laughs> yeah, I did a lot of camping nice. like that back in the day. Yeah, I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. So, so yeah. was he like, did he... And these other guys friend up with your parents as well, your mum and your stepdad, I guess. Uh, not really. It was more that um, they. It turned out that they'd said like, you know, he just turned eighteen. He was out on his first road trip. He just got his license in his car. He was, you know, feeling like a proper grown up. So he'd gone on like a boys' trip with his mates, and it was the first person who paid me attention in a long time. Mm. And it was also at that age where I'm like discovering boys Mm. and all of that fun stuff that goes with it and it was the first person who also treated me a little bit initially like I wasn't five years old Mm -hmm. and we'd um, spend a little bit of time together on the camping trip and agreed you know we'll meet up at a later time and it turned out that he actually didn't live that all that far away about a 15 minute drive from where we lived and when we got back you know um, from cup weekend um, I think like the following week, he's like, can I take you on a date? 
and my parents were a bit skeptical, but then they said, okay, we'll see what happens. And we did, and it just sort of went from there. It didn't go well, but it went. <laughs> so your parents allowed you to go on a date with him? Yeah. So keeping in mind, um, I'm just, this is all happening in like, my birthday is in early December. So I was 13. This happened in November. This started in early November. So I was about a month, about a month shy of my 14th birthday. Okay. Um, so the age gap is significant, especially I'm noticing now (laughs) and recognizing now when I meet kids who are like 12, 13, and then looking at the difference between a 12, 13 year old and an 18, 19 year old and going, Oh wow. Okay. I didn't see it then, but now I see it. Yeah. It's a big leap. It is, but I hate to say, I want to play devil's advocate in defense of your mum. I'm always defending mums, but when I, in the eighties, when I was that age, that was quite common. I've heard that a lot. Yeah. A it's lot really of... common. And it, overseas it's, it's really normal as well in different countries. Mm. Um, I grew up in the country, mind you. <laughs> but yeah, um, yeah, I have to say, yeah, I, I it was common. did notice it a bit. I went to school with someone who was quite traditional and she had a boyfriend that was, I'm definitely thinking in their twenties and he would pick her up from school and we just didn't kind of bat an eyelid. That and was I'm about the time about the boys like, with cars. Yeah, it's mm. about time the boys with cars started picking up yeah. girls from school. Yeah. In about yeah. grade eight or nine. Because remember, like, you're the cool girl then yeah. because you have a boyfriend who can get you alcohol and he's got yeah, a car. True. Mate, I was jealous as. Yeah. yeah. My mum would not have worn it, by the way. But um <laughs> <laughs> So it's sort of just I would have thought yeah. you were cool. Put it that way. Yeah, uh, I had my entire class saying, that's illegal. Did you? My entire year level when they found out and they're like, that's not right. You had a class like (laughs) full of my kids. My kids would be going, um, that's toxic. Yeah, they'd know. <laughs> and this was around 2004, 2004. So, yeah. yeah, this happened the summer of 0405. Yeah. And um, it got to a point well, where... Well, I mean, it was illegal. Yeah, yeah it was. It's mm. literally illegal at the time. I'm not... Sh- I can't remember off the top of my head what the law says specifically today. But at the time, the it's law... It's definitely illegal. Well, if, yeah. he, if he's... Well, you know, we're not at that part of the story yet, but... Once you're having sexual contact, yeah, that's illegal. That's statutory rape, right? Absolutely. So I'll allow you to continue and ask yeah. the question at the appropriate time. <laughs> no, because no, that leads in really beautifully because part of what transpired was like that pressure and coercion for sexual contact. Of course. He's um, your boyfriend, I guess. I mean, it, it's, I feel like as soon as your mum says, okay, you can go on a date with a guy, doesn't that... Isn't that saying, did she say to you specifically, like, did you have rule, rules, but advice around sex? What was she saying to you about that? Yeah, you can go out with him in his car, I guess. I think it kind of blindsided her a little bit. Like she wasn't I expecting bet. this to happen so yeah. soon and was kind of thinking she's probably not going to start dating for a while. Yeah, but when you asked, can I go out with our mate I mean, they weren't, they weren't super thrilled. I think they were both quite nervous and being like, oh, God, it's starting. How do we do this? Mm. Um, keeping in mind there was also a baby in the yeah. house, you know, um, kids of various different ages and trying to parent all of us at the same time, not easy. No, but did she have rules? Did she sit you down and go, okay, you can go, but... You've got a curfew. Yeah, sure, but yeah. I'm talking about hands. Where are hands allowed to uh, go? Where are... No, not... <laughs> No, we never really had that discussion. Like, <laughs> jeez. <laughs> Again, I'm pretty sure that she figured that it just wasn't going to happen. And you maybe naive, naively thought, yeah, well, this is kind of. What else is he taking her out for? Yeah. Hindsight's a beautiful thing. Well, God, but I mean, what else is he? What did you think, Ashley, like when. You were getting to know each other. Like, what was your like? I'll cop it. Whatever yeah. Ashley's thinking, though, she's yeah. thirteen. But yeah. When you when you're an adult, goes. I just didn't think anything would happen. I've got no idea. I do ask myself that question a lot. I don't know. We don't talk about it. No, you're a baby. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. I went in cars with boys at thirteen as well, and I know what I was thinking. Nice car. <laughs> cool car. I like your car. 
I was thinking, you know what it was? It was for me, it was freedom. Yeah. It was getting out of the house. It exactly. was doing things that I wouldn't otherwise do, like, you know, going to movies more often yes. or yeah. go bowling or, like, you know, there were some fun things in there. Like, uh, mm. you took me dancing at one point and I had the best time learning how to do street lighting. I can't dance to save my life. Yes. But I had fun. Um, I know. It's lovely. It's just so exciting and it's lovely. It's a lovely feeling. Yeah. Um, that part was really nice. Yeah. So there were a couple of moments like that in there, but it escalated from that to, you know, um, bullying and a lot of control very quickly. So it was then leading into things like, I want you to wear these clothes. And there were clothes that um, afforded easy access. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) Um, And my parents weren't happy about that either. And they noticed a big change in my mood. They, they, I remember them telling me like, you're really irritable and like grumpy, like, and this is not your usual self. Because you're angry, right? Do you think? Yeah. Angry, upset. You don't quite understand what's going on, but you you get that feeling in your gut like, oh. Mm. Um, pressured? Did you feel yeah. pressured? Yeah, all the time because it would go from, I want you to wear these clothes and if you don't wear them well, um, to if you don't do this, then I'm going to break up with you. If you don't do this, then I'm going to do that. And that's when things really started escalating and there were moments where um, things got very scary because he would drive me out to the middle of nowhere and say, right, I want you to do this. And, and if there's know, no street lights, yeah. there's no houses nearby. It's literally, I mean, I've been through that area now as an adult and it's built up. Yeah. <laughs> um, but at the time it was just paddocks for like square kilometres and mm. where are you going to go? This is in the time before mobile phones were mainstream with kids. Kids did not have mobile phones unless they got a hand-me-down. No, so do what I want or get out. Yeah, find your own way home. Yeah. Um, so then it was like, uh, okay, well, I guess I'm going to have to because I don't know where I am and there's nowhere to go for help so anything can happen out here. Um. And it so stuff like that would happen. And how's your little tiny self-esteem? That you're as, as frightened of that as you are of him breaking up with you. Like, what self-esteem? Us, there was self-esteem. Yeah, right. Like to us, that's like that. That's the solution. Break up with me, great. But no, like to you, that's like it's social suicide. Yeah, to put it in mean girl terms. Um, I, I, I don't think I know that yet. Like where. Where were you living, the community you were living? Yeah, how big a part of of your sort of identity was the fact that you had this older boyfriend? Was that, a, was that really important to you? It was important for a lot of different reasons at the time. Like it was like it gave me a bit of credibility with my classmates. Yeah. Um, it gave me, a, you know, things weren't always great at home. Mm. So it gave me an outlet to get out of the house right. as well. And that's why it was also important. So, you know, there's the credibility. There's I'm a bit grown up, feeling a bit cool. What did you think would happen if he broke up, if he dumped you? Heartbroken. Just I I couldn't even fathom that. Um, I, do you know what? No one's ever actually asked me that. Really? <laughs> so I just remember feeling like I could not fathom life without him, even though He'd only been part of it at that point for maybe four or five weeks. God. Like it was that fast. You can have that intensity though. I feel like 14 is a really pivotal yeah. age. Like I look back oh, totally. to 14 and I'm like, yeah, yeah. It's, I thought I'd super grown up. It's fascinating you know? that he'd convinced you that if he dropped you, that would yeah. just be so devastating. And yeah. I was just wondering, if, yeah, what what everyone else, what what it felt like, what the – what the fear was, what it would feel like if he dropped you. It's devastation. Yeah. Mm. Because it's also the embarrassment of going, well, he dropped me. Yeah, mm. where's your boyfriend? Oh, we broke up. Yeah. Oh, but- he dropped you. You know, Yeah, yep. that feeling of being dropped. Yeah. Mm. It's not nice. And if you say, I dropped him, they're like, oh, yeah, sure you did, mate. Bingo. Or bitchy girls, yeah. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's the shame. The shame. The shame and a bit of humiliation thrown in there for good luck. Like, 
it's not a nice time to go through. Being a girl who's got a boyfriend with a car is a thing. It's it's an identity, isn't it? It's a whole thing. Yeah. But um, yeah. So that escalated so fast, and it sort of came to a head one day because I was starting to get really, I was starting to feel really sick with anxiety. I didn't know that that's what it was at the time. I just knew that I'd gone to the school nurse a couple of times. So I was like, I think I'm going to throw up in class. And I'd had to be picked up a couple of times from school. And my mum was like, something's really not right here. What's going on? Like you never come homesick from school. My mum is uh, one of those people that, you know, you go to school unless you are dying mm-hmm. kind of people. Um, Were you using contraception by the way? Yeah. Which was probably also why I felt sick. <laughs> I'd, I'd gone on the pill wow. at his insistence mm. and it was, oh, it made me feel really sick. Right. Um, again, keeping in mind at that point, I think I'd only been on it for a few weeks. So it was still very new. Mm. Um, and my mum kind of said, what is going on? Something is not right. You're going to tell me exactly what's going on. And I told her and that's when it just kind of all blew up and she said, right, he is not welcome. He's not coming here. That's it. It's over. I'm keeping him away. Um, and that kind of brought, I guess, you know, beyond that point, we just stopped talking about it. So I had, we had a lot of arguments. We had a lot of, you know, um, your normal teenage kind of brattiness mixed you and in with this as well. Yeah. You, you in did, the aftermath. Yeah. Okay. What about him? Yeah. Or? About what had happened. And I didn't know, I know, I know now, but I didn't know at the time that what I was going through was like active trauma mm. and, and this is like actually quite a normal response. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and we didn't know how to handle it. My family certainly didn't know. We had no resources to deal with it and it just kind of got swept under the rug. Yeah, I'm sure she's thinking, well, I've, I've fixed it. I sent him away. I fixed it. You yeah. Know? So what's the, you know, it's not, well, it can't be that because I fixed it. So I don't know what's wrong with her. Yeah. You know, she's just being a bitch to me. I don't know why. I've she's just, just an emotional teenager. Yeah, yeah. Well, and at that age, we, we can be. We have a lot going on anyway. You know, probably her, her friends are saying, oh, they're all bitches at that age. Don't worry about it, Mark, or whatever, you know, like, yeah, yeah so... 100%. So it was just, we stopped talking about it. And it took me until I had like a big breakdown in 2013. So I uh, had myself nervous breakdown. I got diagnosed with complex PTSD. And from that point onwards, I couldn't work. I couldn't participate in society anymore because I was such a wreck. Can I just backtrack just for one minute? I was thinking about how the kids at school were saying that's illegal, that's illegal, which it was. Mm. Did anyone else, any other adults at any point say that's illegal and we need to go to the police? I had a couple of adults tell me, but telling me is not the same thing as intervening. No. Yeah. Because yeah. you're a child. I'm a child. So this is the thing. I, I held a lot of blame about this for a very long time, as a lot of victims um, and survivors do, mm. which is, you know, you can tell them, but it's not the same as intervening because a child doesn't have a lot of agency or means to advocate for themselves. Like, yeah. for example, did any teachers know? Because legally it's their responsibility if they did nope. know. Unless they overheard schoolyard gossip, no. Okay. Um, any- but like family friends had sort of known about it. I know some family members knew about it and I know that they had done what they could, mm. but it wasn't enough. Like, and, and that's not their fault. That's also the system that we had at the time it's changed. Don't know. Mm. But it's good for listeners to, I think, to understand that it is their responsibility. Mm. Mm. We have mandatory reporting for a reason. Yeah. And also to agitate in the strongest possible terms. If, if this is happening to a family member or to someone that they know, no matter how normalized it it is in Mm. the family or in the social circle, it, it is illegal. And it's illegal for a reason because 14 year old girls are not equipped no. to participate in relationships with 18 or 19-year-old men. No, and you know what's really fascinating? Well, fascinating is maybe not the right word, but the 
like I was one of those girls that developed pretty quickly. I yes, and I did not look like I was thirteen, fourteen. I looked yeah. like I was about sixteen, seventeen. I know. I'm really relating to it because yeah, I was like mentally, too. you're still a fourteen year old. But the, this day, you just wake up one day, and suddenly men are looking at you differently. Yeah, you just woke up with tits one day, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Big ones. Yeah, <laughs> I get it. And <laughs> it's like they don't even look at your face to realize you're actually still a child. People don't realize that, and the way we treat thirteen, fourteen year old kids is not. We don't treat them that way. We treat them like they are more grown up. Yeah. And we forget that they are kids. Yeah, right. Mm. And so that's what I'm saying. If you know a 14-year-old girl in this situation, there's a reason why it's illegal and why you need to step in and and help her. Even if she's big noting it and going, this is great, I'm loving my life. Like, Exactly. Th- it'll come back around, right? So ha- this is how it came back around for you. You had a, you know, a breakdown how many years later? Uh, so about... 20, not 20 years, sorry. Um, so 2004 10 years is when later. it ends. Yeah, about 10 years later, nine years later. And you're unable to work. And yeah. You're... So I had been working and I couldn't anymore. Mm. I was suicidal. I, um, like I couldn't, I stopped functioning. I stopped being able to function. I couldn't sleep. I was like leaking tears nonstop. Like I could not stop crying and I wouldn't even know why. I was like, I don't know why I just can't stop the tears. Um, and the only way I can put it is that like, it was like a complete mental devastation. That was almost like, okay, the dam's broken because immediately what happened after this man left my life is my brain kind of erased the tape. I forgot what happened to me, which is, I now know quite normal for trauma your brain does incredible things to protect you. And then in 2013, my brain's like, hey, <laughs> remember that thing that we forgot about? Um, it's here and I'm going to make you deal with it. Wow. What, um, what do you think prompted that kind of sudden I just moved in with my partner okay. and I moved into a house that I lived in when I was a kid in an area where I felt very safe. Okay. And I was surrounded by family who made me feel very safe and were very caring and supportive of me. So I think it's that feeling of coming home and starting a new life and all of that. And it just within about two months of us living together, boom, there it was. I think you were in a safe environment and so yeah. your mind allowed you to process it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, yeah right. Um. And that was a whole roller coaster to get me through that mental health crisis. Mm. Um, it took about 18 months or so to kind of get me to a point where I could maybe try working again. Mm. And that sort of didn't go super well, but, you know, whatever, we live and learn. Um, and my partner through all of this, like I'm engaged to him now. He's amazing. He, I don't know how he did it because he never knew what he was coming home to. He was mm. like, oh, I don't even know if I can go to work today because you are not okay. Mm. Um, it just, I tried to report what had happened or like talk to police about it and go, just someone talk me through this because mm. this is what I've been told and I'm trying to unravel it. And they said, sorry, um, there's a statute of limitations and it's expired. You, We can't even do a report. I was like, what Mm. all all the messages that I've ever heard is if something's happened to you tell the police yeah and historical sexual abuse I thought you could still go this was before that law came in Uh. so in like 2014 I tried to report it and they said no sorry statute of limitations has run out it's eight years it's gone see you later did Um, you know anything about him at that stage what he, he was up to in his life did you know where he was no, uh, I didn't know anything about him. I know that he tried to contact me at some point and that had also been a big trigger for me as well um, and been like, oh, God, okay, um, wow. Mm. <laughs> um, I don't know why or what for. Mm. Um, and then a couple of years later I was still having panic attacks every day. Like I was not doing okay but I was sort of able to work a little bit. And I'd gotten to halfway through a shopping centre on my way to work. So it's early in the morning. I was standing out front of a cold and I'd just frozen in the middle of the shopping centre and I could not take another step forward. I was like, I can't, I can't, I have to go home. 
I can't make myself take another step forward. I was like completely rooted to the spot. So um, I turned and I ran back to the train station and got on the first train home and I went looking for a podcast to just try and distract me from what I was thinking and feeling about. Mm-hmm. And um, the first podcast I came across was called Unspeakable and it was by Victoria Police and it was literally designed to debunk all of the myths around sexual abuse and assault. Mm. Um And that just cracked me wide open on the train ride home. I was bawling. I had snot everywhere. It was disgusting. (laughs) It was a good cry. Yeah, but but on the train. In public. Yeah. 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 I mean, all sorts of crazy stuff goes on the train. That's fine. Yeah. On the scale of things, that's not bad. Yeah. Yeah. You weren't hurting anybody or, yeah. Um, and of all the body fluids. (laughs) I think that's fine, to be honest. And instead of, like, going home. I actually found myself walking into the police station. God. So the police station's just a couple of doors um, sort of behind where I live. And I got most of the way back to my house and then took a turn and went up the hill and Mm. I was in the police station and I said, I want to talk to someone about sexual assault. And that was like the hardest sentence I think I've ever had to say to someone. Um, And they said, okay, okay. I'm going to call some detectives and can you come back in an hour? They'll come and talk to you. So I did and um, they came, they talked to me, I was ugly crying again. And there was, I don't know why and how this happened, but there was not a single tissue in this police station to be found. (laughs) That is insane. (laughs) I don't know if there was just that one day where they ran out, but I had snot everywhere. It was disgusting. Um, But they're so tight. They never have (laughs) snacks either. I don't get it. (laughs) They're so I don't know. tight. I don't know. Um, but the detectives were amazing. Like they gave me information. They, I gave them – I really struggled to verbalise what I was needing to say to them. And basically from what they um, – what I was able to communicate, they'd said, look, yes, we need to talk to you further about this. This is absolutely – you're right. We believe you. And they gave me – a lot of information and what was great is because my memory had been playing up so much like in terms of what I could and couldn't remember clearly um they gave me a lot of written information too so I could always refer back to it and from there that started the whole process of you know giving statements and an investigation and then eventually going through the court process god because I'd be interested and I'm sure they were as well in um whether or not he was still seeing 14-year-old girls, whether or not he, Mm. you know, his interest in you was you or your age. Yeah, and that was something that had weighed quite heavily on me Mm. too, going if as far as as it came out later in court, um, I was, according to his team, maybe one of the first people that um, he'd ever had an interest in and this was his first experience too. I went, but if you went from zero to this with me in that shorter time frame, what else have you been doing? Mm. Like in terms of his controlling nature and things like yeah. that. Yeah. And I went, you know, for you to kind of be like, you know, to, to be like that right off the bat mm. was like, Wow. I suspect that there's other people, whether or not they come forward or not, I don't know. Mm. That's my suspicion. Not accusing him. No. So you went through the courts. This is over a decade now, is it, post breaking up with him by the time you got to? Yeah, so like 2017 is when I gave my statement. Wow. He was arrested in 2018. What a shock to him. This is 14 years after he's been dating you. Yeah. He gets a knock on the door. It's the coppers yeah, wanting to talk about you. What a shock. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Do you um, know where he was in his life then? Was he like... I didn't know until we got really close to going to court and I wasn't even sure it was going to get to court. I was told all the time by the detectives, no. you need to know that very few cases make it to court and very few secure a conviction. And oh, then yeah. I was like what? And I went on this big... What is it, like 12% or something get to court or, or something? It's like 1% yeah. or something. Like it's yeah. ridiculous. I think 1% have convicted like, yes. to spend time in jail yeah. or something. So the percentage yeah. that yeah. get to court is, mm. I can't remember, it's incredibly low yeah. and then convictions is obviously minuscule. But, yeah, so that's inc- for you in particular because it was so long before that. Yeah. Yeah. So And because I hadn't been to hospital, there was no, no. medical records, there was no um, rape kit done. 
there was none of that. There was no physical evidence, but they did have really great, um, I think, evidence from the adults that mm. had come into contact with me at different points mm. and to say that this definitely happened. People had met him. They knew that we had been in contact. So it wasn't just me accusing a random person off the street. Um, so what was yeah. where was he at in his life? Did he have a partner? What was he up to? Um, I found out when we got close to court that he had um, married and had one child. And when we actually got to court, uh, his wife was about six months pregnant sitting opposite us. Mm. And that was really confronting for me um, to see her. And I have a lot of empathy for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope that her and the kids are doing well. Yeah, of course. So what happened in in, in court and, and, and what was your experience with the investigators? Was it Socket team that you yeah. worked with? Yeah, oh. so I went through Socket. Um, we had John Wheatley was the lead detective for me. He was really amazing. He was really patient uh, when I was not. And we've I had, actually... We've had a lot of feedback and I felt the same way initially about we were surprised that that it's often men, male detectives yeah. in sockets. I would have thought it would have been women that you would deal with and um, that you would feel more conf- confident with. How do, you, how do you feel about that? I definitely would have felt more comfortable with a woman, but John did a really great job. Like he was very – he was just really well-informed and experienced. Like this was not his first day on the job no. <laughs> and not his first radio. So he kind of – you know, you build that lived experience of working with, with survivors and victims all the time, seeing people in the worst days of their life. So he was awesome. Um, I still keep in touch with him from time to time. I just send him like a little email and say, hey, how are you going? Um, he was just really great. The detectives were great. The system they work within is not necessarily always great. Um, and same for the OPP, so the Office of Public Prosecutions. So um there were a few things that sort of happened, like when it came to deciding on the charges, um, remembering that the OPP doesn't actually represent the victim, they represent the state. So you don't have your own lawyer um, advocating for you and what you want to happen. It's the state versus this person that's accused. And that led to um, some stuff that just wasn't fun because we had to negotiate the charges a bit. And they were like, okay, well, we want your input. I'm like, well, it doesn't really matter what I want because you guys are going to decide whatever you want to decide. Um, And that was really confronting to be like drilling things down to, you know, charges and some were going to appear in different ways. Um, Like there's things like rolled up charges where it's – I'm going to – I may get this a little bit incorrect, but it's basically like a representative charge of things where it's like, okay, we know this happened. We can't say how many times it happened, but we know it's multiple Um, so that'll be there. And I'm like that, it it in no way is, I think, um, at least emotionally representative. So like basically saying, um, how many times you had sex, would it be something like that? It's like, he was my boyfriend 14 years ago. I can't remember how many times we had sex. See, I could remember that, but there were other things. Yeah. But there were other things. We're like, okay, well, how many times were you, I'm going to be a little bit clinically graphic. Mm -hmm. How many times were you say digitally penetrated? Oh, so it's specific sex acts. So specific stuff. Or like wow. how many times were you uh, touched in this place or in that oh. way? Um, what about behaviours like when you mentioned you were threatened? You do this This or, was a big problem. You know, that is something that wasn't taken into account oh, and they no. wouldn't charge that. And I was really upset that they wouldn't because I was like, this is a huge part of it. Mm. If you just do this, then you're missing an enormous part of the offending. Mm. Um, and, and just why this is so bad. Hopefully we can change that. Because, <laughs> yeah, to me, the, the threats... Oh, that's horrible. ...are like what what's criminal as well. You that know? should be separate. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. separate, isn't it? I mean, that's... Yeah, that's the coercion, isn't it? That's... Yeah. This is coercive why... Coercive control? Yeah. This is why coercive control laws are so important. Yeah. Mm. 100%. And why we need to criminalise grooming yeah. more than we do. And we actually need to include that in the charges. Because it makes up an enormous part of of the abuse. Yeah. And it impacts so many people because, you know, my family's part of this too. Yes. And they went through this. Mm. They have their own experience of it and how this person presented themselves to them. Mm-hmm. You know, it affects a lot of people. 
Yeah, and grooming entire families is, has always been a big part of childhood sexual abuse, hasn't it? I mean, certainly by clergy and by people like that, convincing the parents and the entire family that you're a great person who should be allowed to take a child away for a weekend or whatever yeah. is a huge part of that. 100%. 100%. So we pled guilty to charges yep. of assaulting you. Yeah, for a lot of a couple of them I remember were like, you know, for sexual um, penetration of a child under the age of 16. Blimey, that's intense. What was the, and we know that given that he pled guilty, there's an immediate discount n- discount to his penalty. So what penalty did he receive? Hold on to your hats. This is where it gets fun. Oh. Uh, so he was sentenced to 200 hours of community corrections. Yeah. Um, oh, you know, uh, and 50 hours of that was for him to do therapeutic interventions. Um, so really he had 150 hours that he had to do community service in. He was also placed initially for life on the sex offender registry because of the charges that he was that he had pled guilty to. Right. But what do you mean initially? Well, <laughs> thanks to our government, who at the time the investigation was taking place, this other law was just coming into being within our criminal justice system, which basically meant that if you are a young person at the time that you were offended between the ages of like 18 and mm-hmm. I think 19 or 20, mm-hmm. you can apply for an exemption. So the idea is that if you are a young person, we don't want you in the criminal justice system. We want we don't want you to have that sort of stain on your record for life, especially if it's minor offending. Like if it's... It's still rape. Especially, like the intention was if this is like um, you said something inappropriate or you sent a dick pic. Yeah. Did the closeness of your ages count was that was that ever a consideration the fact that you were 14 and he was 18 would mm-hmm. it have been different if you were four would have been very different yeah. I think um but because I was a teenager there was mm. a lot of there was a lot of talk about well how age appropriate is mm. this and I said well here's all the evidence of my mental health records this is how damaging it's been so yeah <laughs> mm. I'd say it's pretty bad guys mm. and you know he was able to move on with his life. He had, he had a business. He was quite successful. He, and, and I had not. And I was mm. like, well, this, you know, at a minimum, the power imbalance and the scales of what he's been able to move on and do with his life versus what I've been able to do and how this has adversely impacted me is not okay. Mm. So, yeah, he was initially sentenced, but we had this exemption law come in and within three months of sentencing, he was able to um, apply for that and he was successful. Mm. So I oppose that. The victim does not get, you, you kind of, I got notified and you kind of get asked for your opinion, but your opinion doesn't carry any weight. So why do they ask you then? I think it's like we have to, like oh, it's a no. bit tokenistic. Like a tick the box kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that sort of made me really angry and like, well, this isn't okay. We just went through this enormous trauma for you. It took, the, the entire thing took about four four years Mm. of our lives. And, you know, my partner was with me through this whole thing and he went through this with me too. And his trauma is, um, it's not the same as mine, but it's still very complex Mm -hmm. and he's still reeling from it in a lot of ways. And it just was like, why did we do this if that's what's going to happen? If you actually aren't accountable for what you did. Absolutely. Totally. We Four years of our lives. Yeah, you know, out of our lives and re-traumatizing and all of that stuff, and this is what you get out of it. Again, there's an argument for not. Yeah, and a lot of people are like, well, he's got the right to do that. I'm like, yes, and I also have the right to ask him to be accountable mm. and to make the system and, and to ask the system to make him accountable. And that hasn't really happened, as far as I'm aware. Thank you to our guest, Ashley Ray Cooper. You can learn more about the Let Us Speak campaign at letusspeak.com.au and we'll be sharing some of Ashley Ray's writing on our social media during the week. Thank you to our patrons, Hannah C.E., Katrina Jenner, Katie Woods, Wayne Ritchie, Megan Priestley, Molly Woodstock, Jackie Marathi, Toshi, Sean, Annette, Elise McKernan and Becky D. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. 
This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.